0: Hello, I'm Steve Davis, and in 2020, we invited expert vocational voices from the vet sector to share their views, stories, experiences and insights. And we're grateful they found time in their busy schedules to join us. With each episode kicking off with an interesting short snippet from a guest speaker, we thought that it would be a good idea to go back through the episodes and pull out some more of the research findings for you and and pull them together into a, a best of 2020 episode for some summer listening. So that's what we've created for you. And we've done it across eight episodes full of short and sharp insights from each of our guest speakers. In this final episode for 2020, we'll cover off the best bits of seasons four and five. Enjoy.
1: I spoke to teachers and trainers about what sort of professional development they were getting to be able to effectively teach online and there was a a real mixed bag there. Some spoke about training that they'd done which was very specific to online delivery and then uh, some mentioned, you know, that they were getting training on the maybe more the technical side, how to upload their stuff to the system, uh, but not necessarily how to create good delivery.
0: Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocation. In Series 4, Episode 1, we stated that online learning can be just as effective as face-to-face instruction if it's done well. But then we posed the question what makes for good quality and good practice. While subject withdrawal rates are higher and course completion rates lower for VET courses delivered entirely online, new research has shown that the outcomes for those students who do complete online courses are similar to those of other delivery modes. So in this episode, I spoke with NCVR Managing Director Simon Walker and NCVR Senior Researcher Dr Tabitha Griffin about how online vet courses are being delivered, the outcomes for those who complete them, and why students may withdraw or not complete.
1: Well. We uh, looked at a number of different outcomes for students who are doing their um, VET qualifications entirely online. Uh, So, for example, we looked at uh, completion rates and we found that they tended to be lower for students who were uh, doing their courses online. Um, We also found that student satisfaction was a little bit lower, um, although it was still at about 80%, so it wasn't terrible. Uh, But employment outcomes, um, they looked quite good for students who had graduated from online courses. They were either similar to, or in in some cases better than, um, students who had graduated from uh, courses from other delivery modes, so it was quite mixed. So, when we um, interviewed teachers and trainers, we asked them uh, what they thought were important factors for uh, good practice in online delivery, and some strong themes came out of that that uh, could potentially improve completion rates. So, these included things like um, a positive and supportive attitude and ethos in the training provider. Uh, ensuring that students have realistic expectations of the course and the delivery mode when they enrol, having well-structured, current, engaging resources uh, that cater to a range of learning styles, Um, making sure there's an effective and accessible student support system in place. And lastly, um, having highly skilled and knowledgeable teachers who display empathy and are creative problem solvers We found uh, when when talking to teachers and trainers that um, students faced a a myriad of problems um, when trying to complete their online training, particularly in terms of assessment. And the number of creative things that uh, these teachers described to me um, to enable their students to um, be able to submit assessment um, was, was really surprising and quite a positive thing.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the really important points to come out of the study was good quality is good quality whether you're doing something online or not. Mm -hmm. Good teachers has always been known to be the single biggest difference in the outcome for a student, and good teachers, whether it's online or otherwise, are still a vital part of that process. And I'm
3: going to be quite controversial here and and suggest that the whole The whole architecture needs to be flipped. At the moment, it's very educator-led. The the experience I've had in the past is when we've gone out and tried to partner with an RTO and deliver accredited training, we've been dictated to into how it would be delivered. We had very little say and input into the program.
0: Hello, and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for... Digital skills are now essential for almost all occupations and workers in Australia. In Series 4, Episode 2, we asked, how do we best incorporate digital skills into VET courses? And how do we make sure our VET educators have the digital skills they need? We spoke with Susie Cutie, Head of Organisation Development and Learning at Metro Train Sydney and NCVER researchers Michelle Cicelli and Bridget Wybrow about what teaching digital skills means for VET educators. They also discussed the integration of digital skills into VET delivery and why digital skills should become a key component of foundation skills. This discussion referred to two good practice guides, Incorporating Digital Skills into VET Delivery and Teaching Digital Skills, Implications for VET Educators, published by NCVER on the 10th of June 2020, both of which are available to download from the NCVER website.
4: Um, Also, part of our research, we did some exploratory data analysis looking at digital skills-related units of competency, and through this we can see that there are indeed many digital skills-related units in VET Qualifications a lot of them are only electives rather than core. So this means a person can complete a qualification without doing any of the digital skills related units. So it's not that these skills aren't available in the vet sectors, but more that they aren't necessarily incorporated in the best way yet. Um, there's currently a digital transformation expert panel, which is developing a digital transformation skills strategy, and they're looking into this issue as part of that. So I guess you could say it is more widening of the gap.
5: But simply um, being able to use technology does not necessarily mean that um, you know how to teach that technology. So there's a need to, uh, for VET educators to know and use the most appropriate teaching methods to teach with technology and to teach their students um, digital skills or how to use the technology and um, it came up in our forum. There were a number of participants who inf- emphasised that it's important to make this distinction between teaching technology or digital skills and using technology for teaching or for online learning. The skills that are needed are actually quite different.
3: The group that we were we were training was about four hundred and fifty um, workers, and they were they really sort of came from the labour force area, so they weren't. Uh, they were quite low-skilled laborers, um, so there were already some um, challenges that we had to face in terms of uh, upskilling them and um, giving them the necessary uh, competencies to be able to perform their jobs on site. Um, so we had to really account for their language literacy and numeracy, um, and something that we actually didn't factor in at the time, but we we worked out later, was around their digital literacy. Um so, the, the, the catalyst for us investing in the development of an augmented reality app was to overcome some of the challenges um, with accessing large plan equipment uh, for training. So, predominantly, the skill set was around safety and manual handling um, and the maintenance of the um, operating machinery. Um, so, when we developed the app and, and we rolled the app out, what we actually found uh, was whilst it was a very interactive instructional mode of delivery, it wasn't actually well integrated into the actual training program itself. Um, so I don't feel that the you know the learning outcomes um, were optimised and the actual use of the device and the use of the technology was not optimised. Um, so we really, I guess, highlighted for us that there was a need to have um, like a digital integrator role involved with this process. Because when it came to the actual delivery piece, um, we found we spent a lot of time, um the train spent a lot of time in on-site support and a lot of time was spent um, troubleshooting and supporting the um the students through accessing the actual technology themselves. So it actually took a little bit away from the learning component of the um of the program.
6: I think the priorities of politics, the election cycles that we go through have heightened people's sensitivity to announcements and we're competing for who can announce um, you know, the most support for whatever the, uh, the issue is, whether it's let's rebuild manufacturing, renewable energy, whatever it happens to be. I think the sooner that we can get a sense of purpose about why we do training contract related employment, the better, and it should be about the production of build workforce that we will need to meet the challenges
0: of a rapidly changing economy. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for In Center Series four, 5, four, Episode 2, we asked, do we value tertiary and vocational education equally and have apprenticeships lost their sense of purpose? In light of budget announcements that had just been made at the time of recording, apprenticeships were back in the spotlight. Along with Simon Walker, I also spoke with Ian Curry, Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, AMWU, National Coordinator, Skills Training and Apprenticeships, about the future of traditional trades and how the perception of apprenticeships has changed over the years. Discussion focused on regulation, flexibility, completion rates, as well as the complexity around the
2: status of VET. The issue of status is a complex one. But one starting point is to see how the issue of status plays out when young people are making choices at school, and in particular, whether they're choosing a vocational education or a university pathway. And I'm going to refer to a recent report based on the Shergold review into senior secondary school pathways, which made some interesting observations. One of them was that there's an undue focus on the ATAR, and it has a distortionary impact On educational expectations in which a preference for vocational education and training is perceived as second-class. I'm now talking about the educational pathway. (laughs) And they also observed that there was a recent survey that found about 50 percent of students had a very strong understanding of the pathway to university, but in fact only about 16 percent of students had a good to strong understanding of other pathways including vocational education apprentices and trainees. And what I found probably most fascinating when you bring that together to your question is they also observed that while uh, fewer school students hold aspirations for vocational education and university as an educational pathway, there is actually a higher interest in VET related jobs than in the pathways themselves.
6: Apprenticeships are the most demand-driven model that we have, the production of the skilled workers that the economy needs. It means an employer has to put their hand in their pocket and fund a person to learn the trade. So they reflect the, the, the ups and downs of the economy, but they are still the best method of producing a skilled tradesperson, and I would posit that that is the point of an apprenticeship. It's not an employment subsidy. It's not a Temporary alternative to New Start or a Job Seeker or Job Keeper. Um, the purpose of our VET system is the production of skilled and adaptable workers who go on to employment in the economy. And uh, apprenticeships and traineeships done well are a very good way of achieving that goal.
7: We're now using language at further segments. You know, we talk about higher apprenticeships, and we, I, I get that it's a marketing term. Uh, my view is that it's a, another apprenticeship, but the uh, the outcome of it is for a different qualification.
8: Even using the word "higher level," I, I don't think is a, a fair term necessarily. Just those ones that require kind of more kind of development uh, and more kind of structured development. Uh, they're the things that we think we should be targeting with this program.
0: Hello, and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National. In Series Five, Episode Three, Ian Curry returned along with Dr. Peter Hurley. Education Policy Fellow at the Mitchell Institute, Victoria University, to discuss the challenges facing young people as they try to get a foothold into those highly skilled, better-paying jobs that will set them up for the future. The episode revolved around the question, how can we increase the number of jobs available and provide better pathways into jobs and industries that have been increasingly out of reach? In the course of the conversation, we covered the concepts of cadetships, higher apprenticeships and work-ready skills, the merits of a national cadet program for those jobs more often associated with diploma or bachelor degree qualifications, whether or not employers expect too much of new recruits in terms of skill sets, and whether we focus too much on training for the skills employers want rather than creating more broadly skilled people. So I think we
7: need a much more um, structured way of allowing people into work without the expectation that they're going Mm -hmm. to be uh, rocket scientists on day one. Mm -hmm. Um, There are less jobs around that are suited to people who have um, perhaps lower levels of skills and knowledge on entry, uh, but we still have to provide a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And traineeships, apprenticeships and cadetships are, are probably a good place to start for that. So the expectation is you turn up on day one, ready to go. And uh, I don't think we can sustain that as a population. And we constrain, we'll, we'll end up with a gap in our capability as older workers retire. And we haven't provided the pathways through to those higher skilled jobs. And jobs increasingly now are higher skilled in some senses, except for those that are being automated out where there is less skills required. So we've got some quandaries, but you know, I mean, what we need to do is have a national conversation about how you resolve those things.
8: I think what Ian was just saying there is completely right. I mean... uh, things like education, they're kind of intermediary spaces, temporary spaces that we set up for people to kind of transition and kind of gain the skills that they need to work in, in, in particularly to work in, in occupation. So, I mean, a cadetship combines formal training with practical work experience that includes some form of paid employment. So like apprenticeships and traineeships, the cadetship program would mean young people and mostly young people, but m- not exclusively, would train, study a- and earn an income. But our proposed cadetships that we were talking about are aimed at for those jobs that are more often associated with like diploma or bachelor degree qualifications. And they're focused on areas of study such as business, IT and engineering. They're, they're just slightly different from traditional trades. Now, we propose this model because there's a lot of evidence that says combining theory and training embedded in a real life work environment generally leads to better employment outcomes for young people. So we propose two streams in our model. The first more closely resembles a traditional apprenticeship or traineeship and draws on the relevant training provisions in industrial rewards. So this is for more unskilled and, and non-tertiary qualified people. And the second stream, more for recent graduates or those who already have some work experience but may need some further support training to enter the labour market. Now, I think there's considerable scope to adapt this program or a cadetship program depending upon input from various stakeholders, unions, business, government and so on employers, uh, the important point is to combine education with a formal employment contract in jobs that require higher levels of skills.
2: Having read uh, Peter's report, and he's just mentioned there the two streams, in particular the stream one in his report, which refers to a more traditional approach under a contract of training, we did publish a report on higher apprenticeships um, last year which analysed some of these things. And what came up, which I'm interested to hear Peter's views on this, is that in fact there are already 300 qualifications that are out in the system at a diploma level and above, and many in those industry areas. In fact, it's across 50 training packages. But virtually no demand outside of two qualifications. One is the Diploma of Childcare, and one is the Diploma of Leadership and Management. They take up 85% of what is a very small number of enrolments in those contracts of training. So if you like, the pathway exists now, but there's virtually no take up. So, Uh, Our observation was a lack of awareness on behalf of employers in particular, but you do have to remember that these things were established in the first place, primarily in jurisdictions based on industry demand, or at least perceived industry demand. So there's a bit of a paradox here where we do have product or pathways, but they're not being utilised, and I'd be interested to hear Peter's views on that. A problem that many
9: people suffer from is this idea that there's a one-to-one correspondence between what qualification um, one has and the job you get. This is an extremely unhelpful way of thinking and in fact when you look at um, data on uh, people's careers and how they move around there's only a tiny group of people who get qualified in one area build a career in it and stay there. And and that's been the case forever. People talk about, you know, in the past, everyone had these fixed careers. That's actually not right. If you look at the data on labour mobility, uh, Australians are actually more mobile in the past than they are today.
0: Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast. In of Series 5, Center. Episode 4, we return to the topic of qualifications in the Australian VET system, asking whether too many are underutilised and How many are past their use-by date? Our guests for this episode were Professor John Buchanan, Business School, University of Sydney, David Morgan, CEO, Artibus Innovation, and Simon Walker, NCVER. And there were a number of concepts discussed. One was grouping of qualifications into vocational clusters – which would not only reduce qualifications but also facilitate individuals being able to train for several jobs at once. It was noted that this approach creates greater transferability of skills in the labour market. But the overarching question remained – do we have the appetite for such transformative change and is there a role for good quality
2: training that may sit outside the formal national training system research is titled rationalizing vet qualifications selected international approaches and it was a literature review of mainly european countries but also new zealand and you're right there were two main methods emerged one of them was just looking at the utilization of the existing qualifications in those countries and a fairly blunt instrument which said, well, if there are no enrollments, we don't need the qualification or low enrollments. And to give you a sense of scale, uh, in New Zealand they embarked upon this process using you know, under utilization as the lens by which they rationalized them. And in 2011 they had the best part of 5,000 qualifications and by the time they've gone through a fairly considered and collaborative and consultative process, they're now down to about 900. Um, By comparison, uh, just for context, in Australia we have about 1,600 what we call in-use qualifications but a bit of research we did a couple of years ago showed that 85% of them were concentrated in just 200 of them and well over 300 had no enrolments and quite a few more had very few enrolments. So that's one instrument. It's just to look at the utilisation of those qualifications and, of course, if there's no one actually enrolling in them, you'd have to debate whether they need to exist. The other one that's probably emerged and closer to what John was talking about is the notion of clustering uh, qualifications for a range of occupants. Patience. and because John and um, David will probably talk a bit more about that, probably the only thing to add to that is, um, um, we looked at a couple of European countries, but the Netherlands gives some good insights. Um, they reduced their number of VET qualifications by 30%, and they now have 180 qualifications, but that cover what they call 490 profiles, which is effectively occupation. So you've got one qualification to many occupations. And in addition, they have these optional modules, and I've got about a thousand of those, they're very similar to our units of competence. And they're the ones that you can add on to those foundational qualifications to give you the specialisations in any particular occupation. And uh, I must admit that one appealed, if nothing else, for its concise and structured approach to how you might rationalise qualifications.
10: Perhaps I can quickly pick up on some of the other comments. So, so the contrast between construction and property services is something that both fascinates and frustrates us <laughs> as an SSO. So,
4: um,
10: John's comment about a one-to-one co- a one-to-one correlation being unhelpful, I um, completely agree with him. But in in an industry such as construction, where industrial frameworks and regulatory frameworks have been in place for a long time, um. That one-to-one correlation is actually very helpful. Um, <laughs> pro- the property services sector is is entirely different uh, to the construction industry, and, and perhaps I'll just give a little bit of context. The um, it's we use a term of, of bookending, so the property services industry bookends the construction industry, and it covers covers um, a vast array of sectors um, from building building design, surveying through the construction process to real estate, uh, security, pest management, waste management, so all of the ancillary services around it. But what is fascinating about it is it's actually um, parity in terms of size to the construction industry and is growing three times faster than the construction industry. And this fundamental challenge in this entire debate around rationalisation is is that its data structures don't fit the traditional ABS-type models. So, um, the, we don't have uh, qualification, occupation qualifications that are visible in the property services sector. So, strata managers that manage the many millions of properties around Australia don't even exist. Um, the ABS still talks about architectural drafts people, which are now called building designers and have been for 20-odd years. <laughs> and so we we have, from a policy setting, which we will lead, lead to, I'm sure, in this conversation, not having the right data sitting to inform evidence is a significant challenge. We have, uh, for the last three years, um, been been pushing a clustered model or trying to get support for a clustered model that's in in a sense it's on, Some put it uh, a Dutch model of looking at a core set of skills in the property sector and then building lots of modules around it. There are two two fundamental drivers in in or there's a core skill set that everybody in the property services sector have, and that's around around the auditing auditing of. A building against a framework. So, so we've coined this term, a built environment auditor, and by that I mean people in in the property service sector design buildings to national codes of, of construction design codes. They um, assess buildings for fire safety against codes. They assess sustainability, thermal performance, etc., against codes. So, there's a common skill set around a clustered skill set around um the function of auditing and reading standards and codes. The second bit that's massively changing the industry is a concept turned from Singapore called integrated digital delivery. Um, so so this is where where the entire value chain of a building has a digital a digital sort of backbone. And all of the service providers in that industry, through the construction process, design, construction, commissioning process, access the same digital digital framework. It has other other terms more commonly known in Australia as building information modelling, but it's effectively the delivery of information um, in in a digital digital framework. So, so we have been putting. Um, a clustered model. What we want to do in the property services sector, we have completely redeveloped their their training package. Um, thankfully, we don't have the issues of um, low enrolments or no no enrolments in construction and property. They're numbers four and nine out of the training packages. So they sit with each with property has hundred twenty eight thousand enrolments a year, construction double double that. So we have a lot of people doing these these qualifications, but the core structure of all of those jobs is morphing into a skill set around auditing, massive digital digital um, delivery, but then some very specialist skill sets. So we we've, we've been trying to create a a new uh, qualification model like the Dutch model that will will replace a lot of the other of uh, the 50 or so other qualifications in in the property sector in time as as that one-to-one relationship of real estate become a real estate agent as that model disappears over time that's what we've been trying to do I can I can, I can go on but let's let's let the conversation run perhaps
9: I think a real problem with um, so-called vocational vet reform in the English-speaking world is this idea that you can just pull a lever and get a change. You um, Keeper English researcher uses the expression that the English vet system is the, the biggest policy trained vet in the world. And the assumption is you can just pick the tracks apart and reassemble them any way you like. This has been incredibly damaging to the standing and the quality of the vet system in the UK, in Australia, in South Africa and I think if we're interested in um, improving quality education and getting quality qualifications we've got to position ourselves for the long term and that's not just long term you know, time in itself you know, if you, uh, time's not a healer on its own and equally time's not a solution on its own, it's time for what and I think the other big thing we've got to do is build trust back in the system if you don't have trust in the system Qualifications are worthless. Uh, The Australian system is a massively low trust system. It has high degrees of um, regulations and standard specification because there's no trust in the parties, and there's no trust for good reason. Because if you look at the scandals around vet fee help, the system has fundamental design flaws, and people have tried to over engineer the regulatory structure to do it. So. Um, The answer to your question is, yes, it will take time, but time alone is not enough. We've got to put in place uh, a new regime which is built around trust. And in the work that Lisa Wheelahan and Serena Hewitt and I did uh, earlier uh, this decade, form-funded by the NCVO, is that we said if you're looking at qualifications reform, there are two dimensions. You've got to look at what the domains of expertise are, and that was a beautiful example we heard from the property services sector, you know, an underlying auditing capability and an integrated digital capability. Identifying those things is hard. You know, that's that's both a research act, but it's also, and this is our second point, it's a, it's a cultural and small-p political act. You've got to get all the people in the room who are concerned about this stuff, and they've got to, through a process of negotiation, reach agreement on what those core domains are so yes new zealand offers us an idea about the time scale but i think um, we've also got to learn to to have a new way of thinking about who we get in the room how we involve them and how we build trust in the quals and if you do that then i think you're, you're getting on a different path to getting a, a higher status vocational education system
4: the number one priority uh, for australia including its training system will be get to get the economy back on its feet and get people as uh, skilled and ready to perform workers as quickly as the movement restrictions are lifted
0: hello and welcome to vocational voices the official podcast of the national center for vocational back in series four episode two simon walker and i were joined by jenny lambert director employment education and training at the australian chamber of commerce and industry to discuss whether or not skill sets are likely to take on extra significance as Australia responds to the shifting workforce demands and challenges, particularly in the health sector, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our conversation not only defined what skill sets and micro-credentials actually are, but also explored what role they might play in getting vital competencies into the workplace so the economy can
2: rebuild. Well, I might start with what we understand a definition of a micro-credential to be, and the short answer to that is we actually don't have a formal definition. Nonetheless, uh, consistent with the data that we collect and as put into Peter Noonan's report on the AQF, he used two types of skill sets. One is the training package skill set and the other is an accredited short course and they are formally recognised in the national training system and in the absence of anything else he would regard those as micro-credentials and it's a good place to start. Um, with both of those programs as we call them they've actually been very underreported. we've discovered and we now know by looking at the full range of participation in the edu- in the training system that there are in fact a lot more skill set activity going on, but they're not being reported as such. I'll give you an example. There are some skill sets which are just one subject. A good one, a good example of that is the responsible service of alcohol. We have a certain amount reported to us formally, but we know by looking at the data that in fact a great deal more is going on out there as well. So to give you a sense of the numbers, the responsible service of alcohol is about 26,000 that is formally reported to us as enrolments, but by digging a bit deeper into the data which doesn't formally recognise some of those programs, we find out there's at least a 100,000 or 200,000 more enrolments going on out there. So I know it's a little confusing, but the reality is that what is formally reported to us are fairly small numbers of school sets, around about 80,000 a year, but if we scratch the surface a bit deeper, we find that there are in fact millions of enrolments in school sets of one form or another. One of the things that will come out of this, and the crisis itself is perhaps a catalyst, is perhaps changing the mindset away from a compliance uh, need for skill sets in particular, which is quite clear in the data, to something that's not just compliance. It's actually around some preliminary skills for any job, not necessarily a safety and compliance requirement. And that is, I think, where skill sets want to go and micro-credentials want to go. We don't want to just get stuck on licensing. We actually want them to be more broadly... um, used right across the training sector for any one of a number of skills and there is potentially an opportunity here for as long as people are made aware and I think Jenny makes a good point is most people don't know that they need a skill set and a lot of employers can often find it difficult to articulate just exactly what those skills are.
4: I think there is um, some benefit of that, but I think it will be individual-driven. It won't be systemic. Uh, if individuals want to get recognition now, if they want to get credit now, they've got some mechanisms in place, but they're by no means perfect. Um, I think there is a long way to go, and certainly not in the next 12 months will these things be the priority. But the number one priority uh, for Australia, including its training system, will be get, to get the economy back on its feet and get people as, uh, skilled and ready to perform work as, as quickly as the movement restrictions are lifted so that we can you know get ourselves going again. That will be the number one priority. So issue about you know sub-issues of the VET system and its micro-credentials and uh, issues of individual skills audit will be nowhere near as important as the core issues of getting the VET system well-funded and and able to do the skilled workforce needed to get the economy back to where it was.
11: Government should recognise that training is a public good. It benefits the individual and the industry as much as the individual enterprise. So therefore, maybe it should be overtly government funded, which means that TAFEs don't have to um, waste so much time on chasing contracts which are notionally paid for by industry, but are really paid
0: for by government. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for... 30 years ago, the Australian VET system was on tenterhooks as two major reports were released into the management and costs of training for enterprises against a backdrop of award restructuring that was being championed at the time by the government. So in Series 4, Episode 3, we asked... How do the projections and goals in these reports compare to the reality facing TAFE today? Robin Shreve, adjunct professor at Federation University and President of Vetra, and Craig Robertson, CEO TAFE Directors Australia, joined me along with NCVER's Simon Walker to reflect upon the way TAFE has embraced fee for service and then explore whether there are myths and assumptions surrounding the size and efficacy of the fee-for-service market.
11: Look, I think that we need to, you know, reinforce what the core business of TAFE is. And to me, the core business of TAFE is, you know, um, being a trade apprentice trainer of both female and male trade occupations, whether it's a plumber or a hairdresser, and that's critical. I also think we've got, in the public sector... A huge role to play in workforce participation preparing people to enter the workforce and that can be both foundation studies whether it's reading and writing for adults or it can be initial foundation training in a technical area and by that I mean maybe individual support so people can get a job in an aged care or a child care facility so it's It's the initial training, really, whether for apprentices or for people, especially those not in the workforce. And work I've done in other organisations is that if we increased workforce participation by preparing people for work, it would have a huge benefit on the economy. I think they're the core roles. And there's other things that TAFE do, which I think, you know, maybe they need to make a decision about. Do we need to chase all this um, fee-for-service training because it's just a funding mechanism and recognise that training is more of a public responsibility? I accept Craig's point entirely. That doesn't mean to say it can't be tailored and customised, but it doesn't necessarily have to be forced to be actually paid from a notionally and sometimes illusory private sector. There's the whole question of whether TAFE should be in higher-level vocational qualifications or not. And then it's interesting because Simon's organisation has put out, you know, there's 4.5 million individual students in VET, but I think over 2 million are doing single subjects, you know, um, which might be a first aid or something like that rather than a whole course. And one of the things that absolutely surprised me, the private sector doesn't more of that than the TAFE sector. So maybe that's something that TAFE could play a greater role in. But I do think it's a question about priorities for TAFE. TAFE is a public provider, it's a social good organisation, and I think that it needs to be properly funded to do that rather than, as I said, sometimes people coming in from outside and thinking that it can get lots of money by charging fees for commercial training.
12: Well, I'd certainly go to the point around uh, workforce participation that uh, Robin has just made. I think we've gone too far down the pathway that we tra- We think if we train people in specific skills for an occupation, they've set that person up for life. And if there's anything that we're experiencing now in the midst of this COVID-19, is that that's actually a bit of a false economy. So what we really need to work towards is you've to got to make sure that public provision, publicly funded provision... Um, builds those deep capabilities, um, as Robin was mentioning, literacy, numeracy, even digital skills um, and the like. Then it's an interesting question about who holds responsibility for what you would consider to be um, industry-based or industry-translatable skills versus business um, sort of related skills. Now, I think it does make sense that the VET sector does look at providing in- industry standard skills, um, but I think it's gone a little bit too far to say that this is what a particular business wants um, and therefore the public purse would pay for it. So I think sort of going forward is we should have a better investment into the deep um, capabilities of an individual. Um, certainly we should teach them to and train them to industry standards, but I then think there is a new compact that's required with business to say some of this stuff, is and you to do that once a graduate has entered into um, the workforce. And I think that will give Australia a stronger base of adaptable um, citizens, really. Um, and I do liken it to the point that... Um, Robin was making, we're probably in a new sort of stage of the Australian economy, similar to when award restructuring was around, because at that point Australia decided to bring down trade barriers and it knew that people were going to be dislodged um, and at risk of not being uh, from the labour market and at risk of not being able to get back into work. So we've really got to rethink what that training offer is. Then the last point I'd make on taste is this notion of them being a comprehensive provider. Um, in other words, they've got a range of industries that they cover, a range of uh, technically competent, highly competent um, trainers, and they've also got people who understand where industry is heading because they've come from that industry themselves and they're an observer of that industry. So there is a deep capability within those tastes to be able to say, let us work at the local level with industry um, to be able to help those industries and their business, um, uh, their business members um, to really develop new productivity and capability.
13: One strand of the research was to also improve the government's capacity to think about future labour demand. And over the course of the three years, we worked up an analysis which said, the challenge is not so much to predict the print future, but rather we've got to deepen the capacity to adapt to change.
0: Hello, I'm Steve Davis and welcome to Vocational Voices, The official podcast of the National Centre for... And to draw this summer listening collection to a close, we have what Shakespeare would have dubbed a play within a play, because Series 5, Episode 1 was itself a podcast made up of highlights. Those highlights were drawn from a collection of presenters from two panel discussions at the 29th National Vet Research Conference, No Frills, held on the 7th to the 10th of July 2020. Topics covered in the lively discussions included new directions in skills planning, digital technology and the role it plays in aged and community care, insights from the longitudinal surveys of Australian youth, ELSA, and the role of parental influence in taking on an apprenticeship Speakers you're about to hear are Professor John Buchanan, the University of Sydney, Mr David Redway, Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment and Professor Erica Smith, Federation University. Other speakers you can hear in the original episode include Ms Anne Livingston and Dr George Margellis, Australian Aged Care Industry Information Technology Council. And just before we play the final clips, please note the transcripts and recordings of this podcast and all eight podcast episodes we've drawn from can be found on the NCVER portal at ncver.edu.au. Just look under News and Events podcast tab. We look forward to bringing you more topics and more informed discussion in 2021. Thanks for listening. At
13: the moment, there are, we're, people are pursuing two dead-end strategies. The first strategy is what I call the linear gap analysis. And many of you will be familiar with this. People say we've got to get a handle on the skills that are going to be needed in the future. We map out what those are. We look at what uh, the stock of skills are at the moment that are uh, in those domains and when, and then we then say, well, this is what we need, this is what we've got, that gap's got to be filled by the education and training system. That approach to skills planning has been pursued um, for many, many decades and has been shown over many, many decades to be pretty unhelpful. Uh, projections are usually wrong and often the, it's not just an order of magnitude, it's the direction of change that's, that's got wrong. Sue Richardson squared off the problems with that way of thinking about skills planning uh, about 15 years ago, and I strongly support her findings there. The other uh, unhelpful way of thinking is uh, the, the idea that we need 21st century skills supported by micro-credentials. Uh, this is something that's propagated very actively by groups like the World Economic Forum, but many people in this conference will have heard the debates about generic skills, employability skills. These these have been around for decades now. And... The, The argument is we've got to give people problem-solving skills, we've got to give people uh, collaboration and communication skills. The fundamental problem with this idea is that you cannot have problem-solving in the abstract, you cannot have collaboration in the abstract. As uh, uh, we argued in preparing for the best and worst of times, you can only develop um, problem-solving capability if you are mastering it in a site of particular uh, expertise.
14: When we look at labour force status at 25, most young people, around 90%, are in employment. But the nature and quality of the employment depends on their educational experiences and attainment. Young people with a post-school qualification, particularly at a bachelor degree or apprenticeship level, are more likely to be in full-time or ongoing employment by age 25. Those with lower levels of educational attainment, on the other hand, have a greater likelihood of being in less stable forms of employment or of being unemployed or not in the labour force at age 25. Across all attainment levels, however, we've seen a decrease in employment rates and an increase in casualisation. Young people without a post-school qualification are particularly vulnerable, and Year 12 alone no longer seems to provide the advantage it might have in earlier cohorts. And all young people are vulnerable to changing economic circumstances. Longitudinal data allows us to look at the duration of states such as unemployment. This slide shows the prevalence of periods of unemployment and looks at two measures. The proportion of young people who experienced a period of at least one month of unemployment in three or more years between ages 21 and 25. And the median duration in months of the longest unemployment spell. Generally, young people with lower levels of educational attainment experience more frequent and longer periods of unemployment than those with higher education levels. But education doesn't entirely protect young people from extreme events such as the global financial crisis. What stands out in this slide is the increased prevalence and duration of unemployment across all attainment levels in the Y06 cohort. This cohort comprised a group of young people who were aged 15 in 2006 and who mainly left school and entered the labour market in the period following the global financial crisis.
5: Well, I think um, all the research on young peoples, um, so we're talking here mainly about young people, obviously. Young peoples transition from school to whatever they do after school. Parents are normally found to be the greatest influences and I'm just reflecting on a project I recently finished that was funded by the Victorian State Government where um, we certainly found that and we found that parents were supposedly, um, reportedly I should say, because we didn't actually research with parents but um, according to the other stakeholders, parents were most likely to advised young people about what they knew about. So if they knew about going to university and doing a professional job, that's what they were good at advising at. Um, Aunts and uncles might also help as well. But if your um, dad was an apprentice, then that was a really good way to ensure that you ended up being an apprentice yourself. Um, Parents could also influence people negatively about work. So, for example, reportedly, parents were influencing young people against undertaking work like retail because of the low status of that occupation, even though it could um, create a really good career for young people so parents I think can be good and bad influencers but the main thing is that parents can't really advise very effectively on something that I don't know about so there's a lot of um, imaginary scenarios in parents heads that they may communicate either consciously or unconsciously to their children for example in one of the companies that I um research for that project, I think it was project number three, on my presentation. I haven't actually reported on that, but it was a landscaping company and they were finding difficulty uh, retaining the young people in landscaping apprenticeships, so they actually had the parents in for a meeting beforehand and talked it all through with them and went through exactly what was involved in the apprenticeship and they found once they'd done that, their retention rates started to improve. Mm -hmm. I'll do another example which was from Mexico from the G20 survey project where the Mexican trade union movement reported that they often spoke at union meetings about how their members could encourage their own children into apprenticeships. So there was actually that influence from a third party on the parents um, to encourage young people into apprenticeships. And I guess um, in normal research... Really there hasn't been a lot of work with parents and people often do make assumptions about parents without actually researching them. So I think there's the right um, area for a research project there for somebody.
0: Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments, with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.